Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Father Michael Kaiser. When I was ordained to the priesthood, yes, dinosaurs roamed the earth, we know that, but the spiritual life of the Orthodox Church, at least in this country, was very different from what we are used to now. If you went to church on Sunday, you basically went to watch a performance in which the priest and the choir and the acolytes would hopefully put on a good show, otherwise you might kind of think you were owed money back on the way out. Uh, but in terms of people living the life of the church, in terms of people coming to confession, going to communion, you know, receiving sacraments other than those that were kind of necessary, like baptism and, and matrimony, the fact is, not very little of that was done. It is probably from about the 5th or 6th century <coughs> until the beginning of the 20th that anybody in the Orthodox Church received communion with any regularity at all. And the same thing is true in the West. It was just something that you, you, you were in, you watched, you participated in, but it required very little of you, other than the ability to smell and watch and listen. Now, there are all kinds of historical reasons for that that there's no particular purpose to going into now. We can maybe talk about it sometime. But the fact is that the church whether it was the Roman Church in the West, which was the major group, or the Orthodox Church in the East, which was the major group there, existed basically on externals. And occasionally, you know, some saint would come along, a Siloan of Athos or a Francis of Assisi, and say, yeah, guys, really, there, there, there's, there's supposed to be more about this than you just showing up at Mass on Sunday. Uh, and uh, then going home. They probably didn't even have coffee hour in those days. How they survived, I have no idea, but I mean, they just they didn't do that. And when I was ordained and went to my first parish, which was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, number one, I celebrated a third of that first liturgy in Arabic because I had no idea what, what the people were used to. This is a church that had been closed. Uh, and although most of the older people had died, yeah, I have no idea. And as Bishop Antoon, of thrice blessed memory, once told me, they're gonna test you. They're gonna see if you know anything. So study the Arabic. <laughs> you know, and anything else that they can, they can try to trip you up on. And when it came time for communion, this was Eastern Rite, I turned around to the chalice and came out with the fear of God, uh, faith and love draw near. Nobody drew. 
Nobody came near. Everybody just stood there. I stood there looking at the congregation. The congregation stood there looking at me. And finally, the guy who is doing the chanting for me, if you could call it that, said, how about the children? And I said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, the children, that's good. Have, have the children come forward for communion. Yeah. Which they all did, and that was, those were the only people who received communion that day. It was not until afterwards I found out that half of them had yet to be baptized. <laughs> they didn't ask me that, they did, you know. Because their whole experience of church had been priests riding circuit. Literally. I mean, one priest started a church in Beaumont, Oklahoma, because that's where his donkey died. And he couldn't go any further, so he started a church in Beaumont, uh, Beaumont Texas, not Beaumont, Oklahoma. <coughs> the Roman Catholics began receiving communion regularly and emphasizing that probably about 50, at the end of the 19th century. And we were about 50 years behind that in terms of our teaching and our preaching and what have you. Father Alexander Schmemann is the one who should be mainly credited with explaining to people that they were here for a reason. And it wasn't just to get high on Damascus Rose incense. And so I am that first generation of clergy, of Orthodox clergy, who came out of places like St. Vladimir's Seminary and what have you, uh, trying to explain to people who had, and I was a kid, I was 29, trying to explain to people who had been Orthodox all their lives why the way in which they were going about it wasn't really right. And that, that you know, led to some interesting confrontations and what have you. Communion was not regular. There were churches in which the priest didn't even bring the chalice out. He would just turn around, bless the congregation, and put it back on the altar. A friend of mine, funny story, well, I thought it was funny, uh, was going to his first parish in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they stopped in Butte, Montana, where there's a gorgeous Serbian church. Serbian Orthodox, you're absolutely beautiful. That was coal mining territory. And a lot of, of Eastern Europeans, Austrians, Yugoslavs, Croats, Ser Serbs, and what have you, were hired by the, the railroads to mine coal. And he had talked to the priest, and, and you know, he was, he was gonna concelebrate with the priest. And you know, his wife, Margaret, had asked uh, you know, about receiving communion, and the priest said, well, I mean, uh, you sure she wants to do that? And he said, yeah, she, she's fairly certain. Yeah. Well, she'll have to come to confession. Well, she's done that before. Yeah. <laughs> so she went to confession, and they went through the liturgy, and there came time for communion. And Margaret headed up the center aisle. The priest is standing there with the chalice, and ten little old ladies fell in behind her, figuring, we can't miss this. I mean, this happens almost never. <laughs> so they came forward and received communion too. The priest wasn't particularly happy. It was an extremely different situation than we have now. And one of the reasons it's an extremely different situation is that we have finally begun to get through to people, not everybody certainly, but some of them, 
that there's a connection between sin and salvation. There's a connection between things like sin and whether or not you ought to receive communion. I have people who have come to me who are completely sinless because they would come and kneel there and say, Father, I have nothing to confess. I'm not joking. No one had ever taught them what sin even was. Most of the early clergy were undereducated immigrants from Greece or from Lebanon or from the Ukraine or from Russia. You know, a good old village baba from someplace in Belarus who probably was one page ahead of the book that his congregation was in. I mean, they, you know, they didn't train them particularly. These guys didn't even have permission to preach sermons or hear confessions. They sent somebody around to do that. And that's still a practice on some parts of Greece or the Middle East today. Monks will come around and, and hear confessions and what have you. And so I'd have people come and say, Father, I have, I have done nothing wrong because they had no idea what wrong was. At first, I thought they were yanking my chain, they, yeah, Bishop Antune, they're going to they're gonna stray, but no, they were dead serious. What have I done? I'm nice to my family. I haven't killed anyone this week, yada, yada, yada. There were times when I thought I was in the middle of some Central African dead, you know, jungle saying things like, me, Buana, come from sky and big metal bird with stick that go bang, because it was like that, that's how the level you were communicating on. Yeah. And I'm talking about doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, oil men. I'm not talking about people just off the boat. I'm talking about third, fourth generation American Orthodox, you know, of every descent Orthodox. So you teach, you preach, you do everything that, that you can do, and gradually and slowly, and if you are <coughs> patient, which is not one of my virtues, but if you are patient and if you are merciful, they will begin to listen, and eventually they will begin to trust you. And if they begin to trust you, that means they will begin to confess, to actually confess. Now, people still, however, get very confused. So, if you have any question as to what you're supposed to be prepared to do, it is in our liturgy of St. Tikhon, and we will do it, we do it here, I do it here during penitential seasons. And I think otherwise it adds a much more penitential character to the liturgy than need, than need be, but in many churches they do it every Sunday. And that, you know, is, is in itself not, not a bad idea. I turn around and I look at you people. And I say, Ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking forth in his holy ways, Draw nigh and take this holy sacrament to your comfort and make your humble confession to Almighty God devoutly kneeling. And then we say the prayer that is often called the general confession. Like I said originally, this was just before communion, but again, history we don't have to worry about. 
requirement number one. Ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. Ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. You know, it's almost like little old ladies who would come up and say, well, Father, I've sinned everywhere in thought, word, and deed, but I can't think of anything specific. You've got to think of something specific, because sin is specific. Sin separates us from God, it separates us from other people, but we don't sin in a vacuum. We sin against someone or something. In other words, we take an action which divides us from them in terms of communion or divides us from God. So ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. That's the requirement number one. You must be willing to do that. And notice the wording. That's just not, you know, King James English overkill. You who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. I mean, I have had people come to confession because it says in the parish bylaws they can't go to the annual meeting unless they come to confession. Which is rather pathetic, actually, when you think about it. But, you know, I mean, so they come to confession for that, and between the two of us, I drag something out of them. Yes, I raise my voice in my chair or whatever, uh, so they can vote. But the language says, ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. In other words, you've got a sense in here that you have fallen way short of the glory of God and that you need to do something about that. Truly and earnestly repent. To repent just doesn't mean to come and now sometimes people make up a list and that's fine. That's a good thing. I got no problem with that because the way my memory is now I need to make up a list that says Sunday morning go to Advent Church. You know, I mean, it's just the sort of thing which you've got, you, you can do. But people will come to confession, and it sounds sometimes like they're reading the minutes of the previous meeting. I mean, they just rattle through a list of things uh, and say, that's done. And I trust this priest. I know he's not going to tell anybody about it, so I can relax now, you know. Uh, but truly and earnestly repenting means not just saying, yeah, you got me, I did something wrong. It is making a pledge that you will not do this again. That you are committed to not repeating this sin, regardless of what it might be. It might be out of watching porn, it might be taking crack, it might be yelling, whatever. But you're making a pledge that I will not do this, or I will strive not to do this. Now, the simple fact is, all of us in this room today know that we're going to fall again. Know we're going to sin again. You know, unless somebody walks out of here glowing with the uncreated light of God, I have serious doubts that the sins we confess are going to completely go away. But that's why... Regular and persistent confession is so necessary. It's the only way you keep looking in the mirror and seeing yourself. And if you look in that mirror long enough, I mean, you can, some people can hold out for an astonishingly long period of time, but eventually you will see yourself as you are. 
And you'll either move towards God or you'll walk away. There's really nothing in between there. So truly and earnestly repenting means, yeah, I'm going to pick myself up this floor again. And God, with your help, please, I'm going to try very hard not to flip to that website again. And then when you find a different website, you come back and confess that and say, okay, God, I'm going to, really, I really am trying. That's all God asks. God asks us to be faithful and persevering. He does not say we have to become saints by next week. He expects us to fall down, and when we do so, get up and continue on. That's requirement number one. Requirement number two, and are in love and charity with your neighbor. The church is a body. The church is a community. It's it's described in many, many ways. But the fact is, as, uh, oh God, who was it? The guy from Carthage. I'll think of it in a minute. But he said, uh, nolus Christianus, solus Christianus, nolus Christianus. One Christian is no Christian. You are in a body and you are in communion with the other people who belong to that body. Cyprian, Cyprian of Carthage, I'm sorry. Knew if I babbled on, it would come eventually. And are and, and in love and charity with your neighbor. You know, so many people think, okay, they come. And they do their confession, and they get that out of the way, and that's it. No. I'm currently writing a book entitled Forgiveness is Not Enough. Because the fact is that there are certain things that logically must follow on from forgiveness if you're ever going to be reconciled to real relationships. Those of you who have been married know what that's like. You know, the, the, the humiliation of having to admit to your spouse that not only was she correct, but that you got to make up for it somehow. You know. So ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of are in love and charity with your neighbors. Charity doesn't mean you occasionally hand the guy a fiver and say, go get some coffee. Because that's about what it costs now. Caritas means an act of loving. You know, you've got various kinds of love. You've got eros, which is erotic. You've got agape, uh, which is really, but but caritas means actually doing things, acting to help others and to be in communion with others. So it's not enough that you come to confession, run through the minutes of the previous meeting. And, you know, have the priest give you your absolution. If he is thinking at all, if he is any kind of a priest at all, he's going to have to help you see the consequences and deal with the consequences. Well, you stole from somebody. That must be restored. The Bible says you yelled at someone. You must, you must you know, make some kind of of act of reverence and ask their forgiveness. You gossiped about somebody, you need to ask 
for their forgiveness, as well as God's. See, if we're just between me and God, no problem. You know, I know God's got to forgive me. If I'm remotely sincere in what I'm doing, I know God's going to forgive me. I'm not so certain about the guy who always sits in the back pew who has disliked me and I have disliked him from the first time I walk into this community. That, that's not both, by the way. You're going to have to go to somebody and, and, and do this forgiveness thing. There's something in the Eastern Rite that is more Slavic than Byzantine, but most Antiochian parishes have picked it up, primarily because most of our clergy went to a Russian seminary. And that's on the Sunday before the beginning of Lent. It's called, they really had to stretch for this one, Forgiveness Sunday. And what the tradition is, uh, although it gets variously, you know, tinkered with, is that on Sunday evening, which is the eve of the first day of Lent in the Eastern Rite. It starts on a Monday, not a Wednesday like we do. He, uh, he I mean, the, at the end of the Vespers, the priest comes out and asks forgiveness <coughs> of the entire congregation and prostrates before them. But then, this actually kind of cool. Hey, well, hey, Father's on his knees. I like that. He gets up and the idea is that everyone is supposed to come to him first. You prostrate or kneel or bow or whatever your body will let you do at that age and ask for forgiveness, give and exchange forgiveness. Then that person stands on the right of the priest and the next person comes and you simply start making a line so that everybody in the church has to go to each person in the church and ask forgiveness for whatever they have done to them, even though that person may be totally unaware. <coughs> I have had people walk out of the church rather than do that. Just leave. I ain't doing that. No way, no how. <laughs> I'm not going to talk, ask Aunt Salva to forgive me. She, I have no need. I, I'm not, not, not going to happen. No. That begins to make it a bit more necessary and a bit more personal. So we've had one, we've had two. Intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy way. I am an oblate of St. Benedict. Uh, we have a priory out in California uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I can't be a monastic because I'm married, although my wife has suggested it to me on numerous occasions. But no, I'm married. I can't do that. But I can be somebody who lives as much of the Benedictine rule as he can in the world. That's called an oblate. You make an offering of yourself to God. And there are three vows that Benedictines take, which are probably not what you would think. I mean, if anybody asked you what monastic vows were, what, what would you say? What three things would you probably say? Hmm? No. That's Franciscan. And Franciscans are not monastic because they're always wandering around trying to con people out of money with their wooden bowls. Uh, no. 
stabilitas, stability. And the reason for that was precisely because a lot of monks found out this was a pretty good gig. I mean, you go from place to place and ask people for alms and food, and there are other monasteries out there you can stop and, and, and hang out there for a while. And, you know, I mean, all you got to do is walk from place to place. So the first rule that Benedict put out there was stabilitas, stability. You had to stay in one place. If you're a monk, you had to stay where you were. You could run away, and if you came back, they'd let you in. They'd whip you a little bit, but I mean they'd let you back in. You might run away again, but if you came back to that monastery, they had to let you in. I mean, this, you know, but you had to be fixed in place. Because there was so much going on with scandals and what have you from people wandering around basically using monasticism as a way of supporting themselves. Stabilitas. Uh, and then, of course, obedience, which is the one thing everybody always thinks that you, you are there under the authority of the abbot, and you do nothing without the authority of the abbot. You even have the right to argue with the abbot if you wish. I mean, there's a chapter in there that says, if you are told to do something that you think is beyond your ability to do, you have the right to go to the abbot and argue your case. And if the abbot says, yeah, you're right. I probably put you in a situation you don't. You're not going to work well. Right? You're cool. If he says go do it, you go do it. Doesn't matter. But at least I, there was nothing blind about this. You could go and argue your case for heaven's sake. No, no. But the last one, and the one that has caused so much debate over the centuries, is in Latin conversatium autumn which most people, most scholars, not most people, most scholars translate as openness to change. In other words, becoming more than you currently are. Which is basically what's being said here in the last portion of what we call the invitation <laughs> to communion. That always strikes me as being funny. Dear Fred, we're having communion this Sunday. You're invited. Uh, you know, following commandments who, are, who intend to lead a new life. Okay? In other words, your life is going to change. Following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his real holy ways. So those are the three things that we, if we're going to prepare for Holy Communion, and I hope you do, and I'm not trying to scare anybody off, but just trying to get across to you a sense of the seriousness of purpose. Those three things you got to think about before we come to confession. Now, the journey inward can be a dark and scary journey. There are things that I have yet to confess. And I've been a priest for 43 years. There are people who have come to me, and I've heard the confessions of mother rapers and father stabbers and father rapers and mother stabbers, one murderer. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of people over the years. 
But it takes people time to trust, and it takes a priest time to trust. So it is quite amazing the things you will come across if you come to confession with a free and open heart and just trust God to say what you need to say. That doesn't mean you got to remember everything. He's probably too not concerned, not too concerned about the baby Ruth bar you stole from the, the candy store in Brooklyn 40 years ago. I mean, I did, you know, you're over that line. But you will discover things about yourself that will help you and will help others. These you do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbor and intend to lead a new life. This is what should be in our hearts and brains as we prepare to come forward to receive that awesome, that utterly awesome sacrament of the body. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.